Chicano Tribune, Thursday, 21st of March, 2019. Will the real St. Patrick please stand up? Last Sunday, we had the traditional Paddy's Day festivities, the big parade in Dublin, multitude of parades all around the country. It was traditional mid-March weather as well, freezing, windy and wet. All those poor kids in marching bands and short skirts, like Billy Connolly been put into the North Sea by his mum when he was six, turning blue with the cold. Of course it wasn't cold in the thousands of pubs as the snake chaser was celebrated as if he'd scored the winning goal in the World Cup for the Republic. And not just here, but in the worldwide plethora of Irish pubs around the planet. James Joyce in Prague, Pogue Mahones in Milan, Molly Malone's in Glasgow, Melas O'Garry in Manchester, the Dubliner in St Julian's Malta, Fallon's Club in Belfast, Wolf Tone in Letterkenny, and the Thatch in Ormore. Had a Guinness to celebrate my namesake in all of them and a million other places where the Irish and everybody else has a holiday to beat all holidays. As Tommy Tiernan observed, that's why they put Paddy's Day in the middle of Lent. There was no way the Irish could do 40 days drinking Ballygown. It's a worldwide phenomenon, not a place that doesn't celebrate it. New York takes the biscuit as far as parades go, 200,000 marchers alone. It's some show. In recent years, the turning green of iconic buildings around the world has added to the occasion. The Great Wall of China, Leaning Tower of Pisa, Christ the Redeemer in Rio, Palais de la Europe, Bayern Munich's Alliance Stadium, the Coliseum, National Museum, Krakow, San Mames Stadium, Bilbao, Sydney Opera House, Eden Park, New Zealand, and Bur al Arab, Dubai, to name but a few. It's amazing to see the images coming in, almost like the scenes from around the world on New Year's Eve. And it signifies the Irish contribution to the world and celebrates the Irish diaspora who have made the world their oyster. Building skyscrapers in New York, the underground in London, railways in the American West, and at the present moment building the first underground metro system in Saudi, with Irish engineers leading the way. I've been in Belfast, Glasgow, Galway, St Julian's and Letterkenny in the day itself. It's the same everywhere, shamrocks, flags, festooned, parades, All-Ireland club finals in Croke Park, and a party atmosphere in every pub, traditional music, borons and fiddles, Celtic rock and horse lips, quilts, Christy in the cold windy city of Chicago, Shane McGowan in Fairytale, New York, Riverdance, Wee Daniel, The Wolf Tones, Furies, The Dubliners. Sure, the crack, as they say, is always made in La Felia Padraig. Considering the weakness in it, I thought I might have a slightly facetious look at the man in question. Not so much as the Great White Hope, more so the Great White Irish Pope. We all know the story of St. Patrick. Well, we think we do. The Welsh slave bringing Christianity to our country the Bishop of Armagh, patron saint and apostle of Ireland. We don't need to think about it. He's a superstar in the world of iconic celebrity, and without a doubt, he's one of us. That's a story, and a great story it is. But do we actually know if it's the real truth, or just a made-up fantasy like Queen Maeve and Ben Bulban, or Coo Holland on the Cooley Mountains, John Wayne at the Battle at Little Bighorn with General Custard? Back through... 2005, I first met Davy O'Cronin, professor at NUA Galway, an incredibly talented academic and historian. 
He was the guy who first planted doubts about the whole Patrick story for me as a returning mature student and one of his undergrads. At our first lecture on the thorny subject, Davy prefaced his comments with a statement of bold intrigue. Whatever you know about Patrick, whenever I finish this semester, you'll realize it's all hyperbole, embellishment and falsified. I actually think he used more picturesque language as he was wont to do. Davy, a legend as much as Patrick, over the next few months of the semester, I sat fascinated as he dissected the story about the Welsh shepherd who was kidnapped and became a shepherd of the people. It was a fascinating story, but there's just one problem. It's not true, apparently. It's been one big makey-uppy tale, but sure why let the truth get in the way of a good story, and the Catholic Church in Armagh did just that. Davy's the recognised authority in St. Patrick. He's researched the story to the extent that if there's anything about the Paddy boy that he doesn't know, it's not worth knowing. Last week, as part of the Galway History Festival, Davy gave a talk on St. Patrick. It was as if it always is intriguing to listen how Davy dissected the annals of history to unravel a story which runs rather contrary to what is the accepted tale. At this stage, it may be prudent to say that at present there are three candidates who might be Patrick, maybe four. <coughs> to paraphrase, would the real Patrick please stand up? The reality is that there are only two pieces of paper that we can trace back to Ben Patrick's words. The Confessio, a sort of a spiritual biography, and the letter to Caroticus about the British treatment of Irish Christians. In the week of Bloody Sunday, denial was it ever thus. That's it. Two short written documents would provide the basis for the story of St. Patrick. All the billions of words written about the man stem from these two documents. It's hardly rich pickings for a historian, research in the archives, but somehow the church created a story for the ages. Of course, people are entitled not to believe Davy's theories, and certainly the church wouldn't agree, as since the 7th century, Armagh took a keen interest in the story and claimed Patrick for themselves, and Armagh is the ecclesiastical capital of the country. It wouldn't be helpful now to have to rewrite the story. As far as we know, Patrick arrived in Ireland in 432 AD and allegedly brought Christianity to the country. But according to the annals, which were the records of the day, there was another guy, Palladius, who had been sent here in 431 by Pope Celestine. And in the Latin script, it recalls that Ireland was a Christian country a year before the first sighting of Patrick. How do we know these things? Not just from Davy delivering in his witty, charmful way, but in the annals written by Prosper from Aquitaine, who'd be a kind of contributor to the Chaconnell Tribune back in the 5th century. Prosper could write that Britain was freed from Roman rule by Celestine, and in a rather backhanded praise, he made the barbarous island Christian. That was us, apparently, as having never been occupied by the Roman Empire, we were still bog savages. But we embraced Christianity with a valour that stood us well through the centuries, and was probably the main reason that the country resisted British rule and stayed Catholic. Resisting the Reformation era changes, the problem for the Patrick story is that for any researcher looking for the sources of information or primary sources, there are none, only the Confessio and Caroticus. And while Patrick will be mentioned in many Irish annals, he won't be included in non-Irish sources. He's definitely not mentioned in Prosper. There really is a distinct lack of evidence. What about the Palladius guy? He's mentioned in the annals and it's possible he may have taken a walk up by doing well or a trip up 
to Loch Derg, even to claim the top of Croagpatrick, of course, before it was actually Croagpatrick. But that, that's it, 431, he's alive and well, spreading the gospel like a farmer spreading slurry, to paraphrase Davy. And then nothing, Palladius disappears from the history chronicles for all time. Whether he joined the ranks of the disappeared or had a career change and became a general in the war between Sparta and Athens, which was in full flow at the time, it's not known. But Palladius makes a quick exit stage right from world history and very convenient for our man because in 432 Patrick appears and has a wonderful career civilizing and spreading Christian values to the barbarous island. This which eventually left is paying seven euros for a pint of Guinness in Temple Bar. Whatever about Hail Glorious St. Patrick, the fields of Athenry rattles around badasses as American postgrads at Trinity let the free birds fly. Rome and the Irish Church always had a sort of an edgy relationship. As part of her long history, which contained a bit of paganism and druids, there would have been real fears over the centuries about where her real allegiances lay. At one stage in the 6th century, there was a discussion about how to calculate the timing of Easter, with the Irish Church having its own timetable, which differed greatly from Rome. A famous letter from Commune laid out the maths to calculate Easter, which would defile even such students sitting higher maths. As for the celebration on the 17th of March, it appears that documents which went to France in the 6th century talk of Gertrude of Nivelle, who was dying in an aid prayed that she lived one more day to die on Patrick's Day. The story was apparently written about 200 years later by two scholars. True, maybe, maybe not. What about the Patrick man himself? Well, it appears he was a busy man with a penchant for travelling because he managed to walk everywhere he was supposed to in his time in Ireland. He would have needed to be on a co crack cocaine to accomplish such Olympian distances. As for his longevity, Pat, Paddy, Patrick, Patricius was alleged to have lived till 120, popped his Christian clogs in 492 or possibly 461, buried in Downpatrick, depending on which books and documents you read, of which there are libraries full, which which German historians in the 1890s concluded were as truthful as Man City directors of the Financial Fair Play Tribunal. Pope Urban in 1631 made the 17th of March an official date in the calendar. First parade was apparently held in Boston in 1737, but officially it's recognized that New York held the first in 1762, ironically by Irish men in the British Army. Liverpool followed suit soon after, and finally the great man was honored in Dublin before the end of the century. Great historians like J.P. Burry and Dennis Spinchy, Maeve's dad, have contributed to the debate over Patrick during the course of their academic research. Their contributions to the discussion make for interesting theoretical examination. As for the modern year, it is what it is. I'm sure many of the homeless in Dublin aren't too worried by the historical inaccuracies over the guy in the green jacket, big hat and the cross walking O'Connell Street on a Sunday while they shivered in doorsteps begging for a few bob for a hot cup of tea on a typically cold 17th of March. My first recollection of the big man was on Paddy's Day 71. A parade had been organised on the Falls Road that afternoon. Belfast along with Glasgow, one of the few major cities in the world who didn't organise a parade through their city's centre for their own bigoted reasons. 
As we walked along the Falls Road going past the Royal Hospital, named after the Famine Queen, we noticed a Union Jack hanging from an accessible parapet over the main entrance. And like the citizens of Baghdad toppling Saddam's statue when the Yanks arrived, we proceeded to remove the butcher's apron flying limply in the spring like sunshine. Surprisingly, we had walked past the hospital loads of times previously, but actually didn't notice the flag. But it didn't go and notice this time would never grace the Falls Road again. We're the only country in the world that achieved independence from colonial rule through armed struggle who don't have an independence day. Celebrating Paddy's Day was a way out of celebrating our revolutionary history. It was fun, colourful party time, but it wasn't political. The green god, snake, vanquisher, whatever he was, was no Tom Barry. That the state was set through, set up through violence has always been problematic for the government of the day. Partly because of the civil war, it's always difficult for those in power. In the first decade, then when Fianna Fáil took over in the 30s, there was unfinished business in the six counties and still a massive rump of the defeated Republican army in situ. So commemorating armed struggle was confusing if you're letting Republicans die on hunger strike or hanging them in the 40s. And most certainly in the 70s when armed struggle returned, it was impossible for the government to commemorate. I'll bet there might have been a small official ceremony to remember Easter week, but as a whole, the major commemorations of 1916, War of Independence and Civil War were left to Republicans. It actually got so bad the government didn't even commemorate the 75th anniversary in 1991. Hail glorious St. Patrick, dear Saint of Arrayal, on us thy poor children bestow a sweet smile. And now that you're high in your mansions above, on Aaron's Green's valleys, look down with your love.